Okay, everyone, if you could grab a seat, we're going to have a little chat with Paul and Sue. Can I just um, ask you, I know that we have all, we've, some of you will have met Paul and Sue um, yesterday or seen them yesterday, but can I just ask you to give them a really warm welcome for their time? So um, Paul and I were talking a little bit this um, this morning, or I think it might have been yesterday. Um, Paul has actually written three books, and um, he was telling me a story of his grandson um, kind of looking at his book saying, so are you an author? So I think that's really good so to introduce Paul as an author, <laughs> a speaker, a leader, a father. Um, Sue is, has, is a mother, and has had, they've got, had a wonderful journey, and she's a leader and an incredible, both of them have incredible ministry and um, we can't wait to hear more. So um, we're just going to start really with a really interesting question for you, Paul, which has come through on the text already. Uh, what is your favourite coffee bean at the moment? <laughs> we're moving into the glory straight away here. Um, I currently drink Monmouth Espresso Organic. Where can we... Where can we get hold of well, it? Well, <laughs> too special. I hope that Monmouth will one day hear about this. But Monmouth is in Monmouth Street, um, just near Covent Garden, or Borough Market, which is one of our favourite places to go and eat in London and just wander around. And so they're a coffee shop who have a bean and they deliver them. They're with me in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Special. I have a very good espresso machine, so it's, you know... Yeah, it's just I'm just a little bit geekish about my coffee, but not a snob. So I'll I'll drink what you bring me, but I will make something that I really like. That's so cool. Well, there you go. You heard it here first, folks. That's where you get your coffee from. So it's a great privilege to have you. Thank you so much for being here. It's just been so great um, being with you and um, just hearing. I mean, yesterday was awesome, wasn't it, guys? Just the teaching. Just not only did it pack a punch, I think it resonated deeply. So thank you so much. Um, so one of the things I just wanted to start with is maybe um, would be helpful for people in the room was obviously introducing you by name is easy. But I would like to ask you, could you share some of your journey um, with how you, um, you talked yesterday a little bit about um, going to Bethel and just wondered if you could just speak a little bit and share about what led you to Bethel. Do you want to start as you got there first? Okay. Yes, I got there first. <laughs> I think um, there was only one other European person that had actually been to Bethel before me, so that's my claim to fame. I got there before anybody else. So, um, yes, I, need, I needed um, a breakthrough in healing, not physical healing. And uh, I met, we met somebody through Randy Clark coming to England in, what, 96. Yeah. Um, and then um, I got connected to Bethel through him. Um, I don't, they didn't even have a website. Well, I don't, was there internet then? I have no yeah, idea. There was internet. Just. Just. Um, <clears throat> I don't, they didn't have a website though. And, um, and God told me that Bethel would be the only place I'd find healing. So, which I always tell 
other people now is like there are so many places in your own countries where you can get healing either physical emotional from past inner healing deliverance whatever you need it, it's not about everybody has their own journey and just because God told me Bethel was the only place um, it doesn't mean that it is the only place everybody has their own personal journey so Good. and then um, it became obvious that I really needed to live there for a period of time because I was flying in and out to get ministry, which is quite tough if you do a whole week yes. <laughs> of ministry every day, nine to five, all day, wow. with only a lunch break. That's quite tough. And, and so it became, and we needed to do that, and then God opened up for Paul to do school of ministry. That became our way in. So again, sometimes it isn't always that you feel like God's saying, I really need to develop more. I really need to go to this school of ministry. Sometimes it can even be a means to an end. And, but God had his own plan as well. So needed to sort Paul out, really. That, that was the plan. <laughs> True story. Yeah, so, um, you know, Paul, Paul did school of ministry and got a career break from the prison. And then... I could have ministry and live in an atmosphere of safety because that, that was a bit of a big deal that I was in a place that was safer than living in the UK at that time. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, Bill and Chris offered Paul a job basically after his first year. Bill kind of famously said to Paul at graduation, what you had, what you had in prison we need here. <laughs> it's, it's people, isn't it? Yeah. Some are locked up inside yeah. physically. They can't go home in a prison. And others are still locked up inside a prison. Yeah. But they do go home at night. And they're sometimes harder to pastor and look after than those that you turn a key in a door at night. So that's kind of what happened. Good. Good Took one son with us. He was 13, 12 going on 13. Left his brother behind. He was 18, had a girlfriend that obviously trumps parents, um, and he wanted to go to university. So my only thing was he better marry this girl. That's all I can say, because <laughs> he's given up coming with his mother. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not only dads with daughters that have a hard time. It's, it's mums with their son. You know, the first time. There's a girl standing in your hallway and she puts her arm around your son. You're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? But he did eventually marry Amy. So, yes. Good, yes. Thank the Lord. So, um, yeah, so that's how we sort of changed our, the course of our family history. And now we have a son living in Reading. Well, actually, he's just moved to Sacramento. Um, married to an American and has a dog. A dog. <laughs> That's their baby. Trust me, she's, she's a baby. <laughs> yeah. And we have a, our son in England with us in Windsor. And um, he married Amy. And we have our two little grandsons who is the best thing in the world, better than your own children. Wow. <laughs> Goes up a level. Up a level, trust me, of fantasticness 
Yes. That, that sounds awesome. That yeah. sounds, I think I'm very proud. Can you not tell it? Like there's maybe some that agree with you <laughs> in the room on that statement. I tell you, the day you become a grandma is that it, it changes. <laughs> it really does. It changes everything. I tell you, you don't, you, you don't, you can't explain it until it happens to you. Yeah. That's wonderful. Plus the fact that you never feel like it's been that long since you gave birth. You know that thing of like you're in a hospital. Yeah which was in the same town I had James. Okay. And he's there with his baby. And I'm like, it feels like five minutes, <laughs> and then you know, since it was me with you. So it's, yeah. And we have two sons and two grandsons, and our grandsons mirror our two sons. Okay. So Sue will often call okay. Fletcher Luke. He's I mean, so, it, yeah. It, it just, it, isn't it, it crazy and it's not, it's, it's just they're so similar. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's fun. It's wonderful. Sounds like and as you've noticed, my wife is funnier than me, which is not really <laughs> very fair. She had you laughing within five minutes. <laughs> That's great. Well, now to follow to you, Paul. <laughs> so what and not be funny. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, um, what, um, so what was your, what was your journey um, like there? And what did it, you know, what was it like not just living there, but being part of the leadership team and, and you know, seeing things birthed um, there? ministries and things what was that like for you um well the initial journey was faith um there's no question about it it was okay we're going to do this we had we had a list of things that made sense prophetically i wouldn't call them clear prophetic words because we weren't in that culture before we left but we knew we knew that it was a setup we flew four days after 9 11 and um had a supernatural way of getting on a plane uh, because actually our plane was cancelled at Heathrow. We were given tickets from Gatwick three weeks later. And uh, we showed up at Heathrow four days after 9-11 without a ticket and got on a plane. There's a whole story which uh, Sue may tell you later. We landed. Um, it was surreal. We stood in Bethel Church on a Sunday morning and sang Battle Hymn of the Republic. Because it was a nation gathering patriotically around uh, what, had, what had made it America. Um, I did one year school of ministry uh, surrounded by, a, you know, by and large a bunch of kids. Um, I, I had vowed never to go to school again. I just finished a degree at Cambridge. I was not planning on more study. Uh, so it was amazing. I was, in, I was in class with people like Kim Walker who was just, you know, just finding her own identity, to be honest, at that stage. So it was, it was an incredible experience. Um, it, was a, it was a little surreal there were lots of times and things that I still refer to of what God said and how he spoke to me. Uh, I think he began, one of the key journeys that began in school for me was learning how to father daughters. I didn't even use the word daughter. I had no use for it. I worked in a male prison. I had two sons, you know. Uh, it wasn't part of my language. Um, yeah, and I graduated, walked out of school on Sunday night. Chris said, we need to talk. I went on three trips with him that summer. Um, got treated like a family member. Um, there are various legends about how I ended up on the team, but um, they're, they're all fun. And then about uh, November of, of the second year that I was there, Chris said, we want to sponsor you for a religious workers visa. We did it all ourselves. We pioneered. We, you know, people didn't even know how to insure a car for a foreigner in Redding, California. I'm not joking. Or how to rent a house or how to start a bank account or any of that. So we did all our visas ourselves. Every one of them was turned down first time round. So it was a journey where we knew God was in it all the way. 
We had, you know, strange, surreal things. We got our green card the day that we happened to have a meeting in the Civic in Reading. And it, it just, there were loads of things about it. We, we just knew God was on it he, all the way through. As for being on the team, you know, we joined, we joined Bethel when it was smaller than this at a conference, I would say. I mean, it was only the two center sections of the church for a conference. Wow. Uh, the school when I went was 100. Um, so we, yeah, I got to be in the back room of what of what's happened and watch the prophetic happen yeah. you know so it it was it loads of it was surreal things i got given to do people i met it was yeah it was amazing wonderful it's incredible. And during those sort of earlier years there, and um, you've talked a little bit yesterday about two other books that you've written, I'm just wondering, particularly Kisses um, from a Good God, just wondering if you could just share a little bit more about your journey and your um, just really what led you to, read, um, to write that book. Um, you know, you don't get diagnosed with prostate cancer and think, oh, great, I'll write a book, you know? I don't think you do anyway. Um. Um, but what happened was I journaled my, my prostate cancer journey. I was, I was diagnosed on my 50th birthday or my first initial diagnosis was, you know, my 50th birthday present, which is, you know, it's a pretty good one, saved my life. So, um, and uh, then I just journaled my journey. Um, there, were, there were a number of key incidents along the way. Um, he, told, he told me what to do. God told me clearly. He said, don't research your, di- your illness. Just trust me. Um, and I followed that. And it, as a nurse, that was fairly tough, but I never once looked up my symptoms, the surgery, anything. I, didn't, I honestly didn't touch it because God told me that my soul was a bad counselor. Don't trust it. Um, it's in the Bible, Psalm 13. It says, you know, your soul can take you to hell if you let it. That's what, that's what happens if we let these things. So I just journaled my journey, uh, um, and it included things like, you know, I had a... What, what I would call a sanctified imagination trip to heaven. Um, I had an inner healing session. Somebody had a dream about me. Um, you know, I, I nearly died in the middle of the night after my surgery, and I remembered the dream, and, and it saved my life. Um, and, and then three months of journaling about May of 2008. I had my surgery on March the 21st, uh, 2008. I got 12 hours notice to preach on a Sunday night. And I had nothing to preach but a journal. And I stood up and told my story from a journal. And when I walked back down, well, Bill closed the meeting and he said, tonight we've, un- we've learned a lesson of the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. And then Benny said, write the book and call it Kisses from a Good God. And so I just set about trying to write out and I added a couple of additional chapters. But, you know, it was... Uh, and then probably the, one of the key things in it, which I, I, I guess I, I didn't really expect to be a fruit of it, was that I made a statement from the pulpit of Bethel where people fly to get healed and said surgery is not a second-class healing. Yes. And then I got a phone call from a doctor a little while afterwards who said, I perform 75 of those surgeries a year, but every Sunday I come to church and feel second-class to the supernatural testimonies. And, uh, and he wrote this, I have two forwards in Kisses. I have a forward by a doctor and a forward by Bill Johnson because I wanted the two. And out of that birthed a thing called um, medical healing conferences. And you know, this nurse who hasn't worked as a nurse since October the 31st, 1982, now teaches doctors uh, and healthcare professionals. And I've, I've even been accredited for my teaching, uh, you know, given 
giving doctors continuous medical credits for coming to a conference that I'm a speaker in. This, I call myself a rusty nurse, you know. I mean, like, I'm a little out of touch with the practice, but... Um, so it's, it, was, it was that journey. I believe that Kisses is a, is a great book for anyone going through a, a, a challenging journey to be encouraged about how God speaks uh, in the midst of stuff. Um, and it's, it's great for people who are walking other people through. It doesn't have to be cancer. It definitely doesn't have to be prostate cancer. Uh, any, any crisis, uh, I think it's a great way of just walking through and opening your eyes to, to the way God works. That's so good. I've got a question here from someone that said, um, how do you move from um, receiving your own breakthrough, for example, prostate cancer, into ministry to others? From that experience. I mean, you, had a, you. Do you want to jump in on that? Because um, it was. I think it's really <laughs> to both of us with the. Yeah, I mean, I think. Well. I think really, to be honest. Well, when when I was healed of infertility, we weren't in ministry. We were just doing life. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I think with with Paul's journey, it it just became continuing on into. We just kind of kept doing what we do. Um, and praying for people as well. I mean, one thing, being honest, that I did find really hard as the wife of somebody going through something like that, and I'm sure there's spouses in the room who've walked the journey, but in ministry, in the very early days, if we, we were traveling places, people would always say, can you talk about your cancer? And sometimes... I stayed in the hotel if he was doing that, yeah. because it it was still it was still those days of like blood test every three months, and trusting God, and and that kind of a thing, or that you became the person that there's a line of people that have cancer, and they stand in front of you and say, I've got six weeks to live. And that was a really, really hard thing. That's just being honest. It's like you still smile and you pray for people and you give it your all, but it's really painful in those early days. So I would encourage leaders here, you know, if you have somebody that's had a diagnosis, um, had surgery, is in that recovery, is in that remission, whatever phrase you like is completely cancer-free, maybe... They need to be the ones that decide when to pray for people and not become the token, well, here's our, here's our go-to person for cancer because it, it's just it's a hard journey to walk out and to be okay with afterwards. And I think as a spouse, quite often the, the person that has the illness is very well cared for and thought about. Yeah. And the spouse is the one that everybody asks, are they okay, what's the diagnosis? And in America, I'm sorry if there's anybody American here, they do tend to want to know every single detail. I, I do feel like in Britain we're a little bit more, I don't know what the word would be, <laughs> reserved. Um, you know, you don't, you don't go up to somebody when they've been diagnosed and say, what stage are you at? And then when you say, actually, that, that's not of a concern to us, the doctor hasn't discussed that, and they then say, you do realize if it's at this point, there's nothing they can do. And then they walk so, away, and you're like, 
Seriously, you, you just actually said that out loud or they stop you in Costco or the supermarket and say, oh, sorry to hear about your diagnosis. Um, did they give you a time? I'm like, yeah, wait, I've just got my shopping trolley. What, what are you doing? You know, which at the time was really like somebody just punched you in the stomach or something. But as a leader, you have to smile and be nice and not punch them. <laughs> because that's not generally accepted. And certainly not in the US where you can be arrested for, you know. Do you see my point? She's answering the question about cancer and everyone's laughing. What's up with this? You know, like, years We should call later, you Michaela McIntyre or yeah. something, you know? Years later, you can, you know, yeah. it's like I know people say, if you can laugh about it later, you, you should be able to laugh about it at the time. And I d there's certain things that you're never, you're not going to laugh about at the time. Sure. But later when you reflect on it, you can be like, seriously, come on people, this, I'm trying to help you here so that you don't make the same mistakes or with infertility. Sure. Um, that lots of women will smile through that. But it's extremely hard being in a church that's very fertile. Yeah. Yeah. Because every other woman seems to be pregnant. Or on their second, that's even worse. Sure. They've managed to get to their second and, and you have to smile through. And usually us ladies that are like that, we're, we're the ones running the toddler clubs. And so it's there all the time. So I think it's just... Um, but we just carried on. We just ministered to people, prayed for people. I think with the infertility, that became a lot later when we were at Bethel and realizing and knowing more, like if you've had your breakthrough, then you have more authority. Right. And so because, you know, Bill will often talk about, you know, if, if somebody shares with him an obscure miracle, say something's been healed he's never heard about, he, and it's a trustworthy person, you've not just read it on the internet, um, He'll, he loves that because he said that's when you can, you know God can heal any illness, any sickness, but when you've seen it healed, you can say, do it again. Yes. And it, it just ups your level of, oh, somebody Very comes good. and says, you may not have heard of this, I've got this. And you're like, actually, yeah. we've heard this testimony. Yes. And, and so with the infertility, we started with the, you know, I've been healed, therefore I know God heals it. Sure. And because I've been healed, it's, it's like a payback to the enemy. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and then, you know, getting involved with ladies who, um, you know, can't have children, have lots of miscarriages. I was praying for a lady the other day who was on her 15th, her 15th. And um, your heart just breaks. And, um, or our friends who lost their baby during labor. And, and it's like your heart just breaks for women yeah. with this kind of loss that often the church doesn't really respond that well to because it, it's like, well, it's just, oh, how many weeks were you? Oh, well, we're only 10 weeks. It's not that bad. And yet, this, and every woman will know the second you get a pregnancy test, you know the date of the birth. You, you've, you know what school they might. It's like all of these things. So you, you've not lost this tiny, tiny blueberry-sized baby, yeah. you've lost an entire future for that child. So I think that ministering in a way that is 
that is personal to you. So we do that, and, and with cancer as well, and side effects from people that have had cancer with their chemo and other things. Paul's seen breakthrough with that and restoration of, particularly with prostate cancer effects, shall we say. I really love that what you're saying there is um, when God has done it once, he'll do it again, and so that it brings breakthrough. And I think it's something that is um, a fantastic, because it's not just a concept, you can see it happen. And then it just, it, then it builds a momentum and it raises faith. And suddenly we're seeing yeah. kingdom breaking out in ways where people have maybe not had hope or and it's just incredible so um i love hearing that really kind of from experience you know obviously from um experience the experiences that you had that and have are still having that god's using you and kind of um speaking to not just in your own life but speaking to people through that one of the things you mentioned yesterday was um that father heart message that just seems to just got hold of you i just wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about what that was like for you and and yeah just what maybe we can learn from your breakthrough what we can learn from from what god has done in you um let me just try and headline it um and this story's in two out of the three of my books in some way or another but the the headlines of these um i'd been asked to build our network at Bethel, which didn't exist. So build a network so we can father the people that are coming under our ministry. And having been given that assignment, I was asking God a question, how do you father an organization? And actually, I mean, I, I had been called a father of the prison that I ran. I always joke and say, you know, people say I fathered the prisoners and my you know, I treated the prisoners as sons, and my sons say I treated my sons as prisoners. But, um, you know, um, but so I had a little bit of that, but now I then have this conversation with God, um, which is actually in, uh, in 2005, and uh, I said, God, how do you father an organization? And he said, you have to be a son first. And, uh, and then he told me, you stop being a son the day your father died, which was 32 years before, um, which raises the question, what do you do about that? Um, and, you know, I had people visit me the next day who slapped me on the back um, and said, you're the man of the house now. Um, in fact, my aunt and uncle gave me a Black & Decker workmate the day after my dad died. I mean, what a crazy thing to do when I look back. So I, I, I knew that what God was saying was right. And I, I basically I did three things in, in a nutshell. Number one, I repented. And nobody had taught me that, how to repent of something like that. Because we teach people to repent from sin. We don't teach people the end of Romans 3.23. Repent unto glory. And uh, so I repented of stopping being a son. Um, and, and it's obviously a long story. But then I did something which I, I, I believe is really a powerful thing to do. And I laid on my bed and had an imaginary conversation with my dad. Um, I, I was reading the chapter in Bill's book on sanctified imagination. And I just laid on my bed and I talked to him as if he was there about normal stuff. Um, and something unlocked in me um, that started to enable me to access the language of having a dad in my life. And that began to enable me to receive more from fathers around me and, from, and to see God as a healthy father. Um, and I've actually just redone that in a funny sort of way because I, I wrote the introduction to things fathers do as a letter to my dad as a 60-year-old man and said, hey, you'd have thought by now I'd have got over missing you, um, but here's an update basically on my life, and I just wrote 
my story. And I think it's a really powerful thing to do. And if you've been hurt or abused by a dad, you don't have to do that. But you can write a similar thing to your heavenly dad. It's just, I think it's entering into and engaging with God as somebody who's interested in you as a person, what you do, what you love, your kids and your interests. And I, th- I think that's a huge piece. So that, that's, that's the headlines, the nutshell of my journey. It's so good. It's so good. We've definitely, um, just I think even just here in the conference, but even just in conversation with you, definitely felt the effect of that father heart that resonates in you. I think it would be fair to say that we're just spending time with you. It's something that, um, that is obviously, it's a, it's a lens and it's a filter that, that you do everything through. Um, it's just amazing. Um, what, have we got any questions? Do you want to bring in a couple? We've got some questions coming through. Just sort of taking you on a slightly different road, but um, one of the questions is, um, what three, what are your three top, top priorities for life? Um, so I'll give you a few minutes to think about that. I could, I could throw two questions in and then, um, and then and Paul could answer this one. Always have fresh coffee beans. <laughs> oh, well, we've got another one actually. Um, slightly, if you need a little comedy one, um, tell us about your big green egg. I didn't know what a big green egg was until you know. somebody told me. So you could do that one and your top three. Oh, gosh. I don't know that I would ever narrow my life down to top three priorities. I mean, it's... Really me. It's, 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 <laughs> well, I was going to say... I was, I was going to get there. Give him a help. <laughs> assumed. That's an assumed. All the best decisions of my life have been for family. There's no question about that. So the decision that we made to go to America was for Sue. Um, the decision for coming back, although Europe was in it, a huge chunk of that is grand, grandsons, sons, us. So, I mean, they're, they're really big priorities. I, I, I just don't know that I would go, here's my top three priorities. But absolutely, I do my absolute best to do what I can to lay down my life for my wife. That's Makes me tea every morning. Okay. <laughs> That's a winner. Yeah. That's before the coffee, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I make you the coffee. If, although you can make the coffee, but I love making coffee. So. I think making sure that ministry isn't all it's about. Like we can so... We grew up in, in a church whereby it, it was Jesus first. That's that's a given, but then it was church, then your job, and then your family. So if you didn't have a job, you know, if, you, if, if church was your job, ministry. And I just think that we do, we do see that, that it is very easy to, to use the words, I feel like God's saying I should do this. So, you know, you're traveling, you're ministering, you're doing and, and that becomes your identity. That becomes like, that's the only place you ever get any kind of, I'm here with a mic type of thing. And we, we, we do see it with, we, we see it with friends. Um, we see it with other people that we've got to know over the years who, and I'm not talking about the Bethel staff now, okay, just in case you might think that. We're talking outside of their different people we've met over the years who are successful and yet you know I've got to know their wives and there's a complete other story 
with their kids, you know, and I think if you're successful in ministry and people want you all over the world and your kids don't want to talk to you or they say, you know, it's like one time our friend, his children were in, in church and he kept talking about his spiritual son and how proud he was of his spiritual son somewhere else. And his own son was sat on the front row and he just said, I wish my dad would see me like he does this person. And so we've always been very aware that like you cannot make ministry or your job as a church leader the thing. Like you have to have some boundaries. You have to take time off. If you know, it's it's a little bit like if um, if I was sitting or if my watch buzzed and it was my son, and then I didn't answer and it buzzed again, I'd be saying, "Excuse me, I need to just go check," because. Um, you don't want to be speaking if your kids need you. You know that, and you, you can't go overboard on that. However, um, I, I just think we've seen it quite a lot where people are successful, or they have big churches, and people are like, wow, you know, this pastor, he's at everything, he does everything, all of these different things, but um, your family. Because we heard at, um, at Spring Harvest one year, one of the, the speakers was saying, and so, I know somebody had asked a question, you know, what, what do you think God's going to say to you when you get to heaven? And he said, the first thing God's going to say to me is, and I, I won't use his wife's name, he'll say, where's your wife? And that always struck me over the years as like, And then she gosh. told me that. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, that is the truth, isn't it? With your, it? It's like as men, it's like you could be the most successful man in ministry, and yet, you could say, but I've, I've seen millions come to know Jesus. Where's your wife? How's she doing? How did she do? So I think it's like when Paul said, he, he puts me first. He, re he really does. Because that, is that recorded? So that, good. That clip there? So good. <laughs> so, so good. So good. Well, we kind of met you guys. Um, Oh, the green egg. Oh, quick, sorry, quick. So green oh, the green egg. green egg. Actually, I think the green egg fits into something bigger, and that is my very good <laughs> friend Steve Witt uh, stood in my kitchen years ago and, and pointed at me making coffee and said, that's your soul corner. And, uh, and he's since gone on to say that what we need is we need to have soul things, soul places, and soul people. And when those three things converge, there is a place of soul rest. And I think it's really important. So I have a few of those at the moment. Big Green Egg is a cross between a Chinese Komodo uh, oven and a tandoor developed by Space Age technology. And what's so beautiful for me is, <laughs> it is it's, they're not cheap. They're about 1,500 quid for the setup. But, but I cook my turkey on Christmas Day. There are some cheaper ones. Costco do one. There are some cheaper models. But... You know, um, it was my 40th wedding anniversary present, so that justifies it, doesn't it? And it's, it's, um, and it's British racing green, you know? Um, and so you can... I mean, last week I cooked pizzas outside in England in the drizzling rain, and I'm firing that thing up at somewhere around 375 uh, centigrade, cooking a pizza in three minutes, cooked a Christmas turkey outdoors. It brings a smile to my face. I can light that baby, you know? 
So I, I, I think we all need those kind of places. Here's a really interesting thing I just learned. For those in ministry, people in ministry who, who are, feel like they're burning out typically go for a spiritual solution. And if you do all the spiritual stuff, it actually doesn't refresh your soul and your body. You always need to have that sense of make sure you're pouring some into your soul, some into your body, and some into your spirit. So, so my green egg, it, it, is, it is my other woman. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there are so many things I could say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Well, in actual fact, who was... No, I'm not going to say anything. Don't worry. It's all right. You can stop sweating. Um, who was it in the Bible stuck under a tree? Was it Elijah? Elijah. And, yeah, having his little burnout... And what was it God said to him, have something to eat and take a nap? Yeah. You know, sometimes I think that follows on. It's like yeah. you, sometimes it really is that you do need to just do something fun. And going away for a, a silent spiritual retreat to have, or to have God talk to you sure. is, is great. But you, if you come back still feeling a bit the same, then you, you throw guilt onto that because somehow God hasn't resolved the problem. Yeah. Maybe you really do need to just go somewhere and have a holiday Take a nap, have something to eat. And I think it's, you know, so if you feel stressed and burnt out as a leader, have a nap, get something to eat. Do it on so the So the big egg. green egg is like yeah. Elijah because basically you can light it in the rain. Yes. <laughs> that's basically, that's very what good. it is. It's in yeah. the Bible. Very good. It's so yeah. good. so good. I think actually um, to be just... To right now, I think that's actually a really good word for now. I think we're kind of rediscovering what it is to rest and to work from a place of rest, not work to rest. And I think that's actually probably even a word for some people in the room that there's this there's this time actually to to understand what it is to rest as the whole person and not just look for a spiritual top up, but to to kind of allow God to show you as what it is to rest. So. If that's a word for you, take that just now, I would say. By Garden City, Garden, not God and, Garden, G-A-R-D-E-N, City, by John Mark Comer. In my opinion, one of the best books of this moment on this subject. Fantastic. Brilliant book. doesn't mention Big Green Eggs, but it is really good. (laughs) Is he at Wildfires this year? He's at Wildfires this year. He's from Portland, Oregon. After the Big Church Day Out, have you heard of Big Church Day Out? Yes, yes. Paul's speaking at something there. So we get to stay in the big house, which is rather lovely. And then wildfires, which is camping, which when we're camping in an Airbnb. I think that's the way to do it, Sue. I know. And it's a top tip, everybody. I know. Camp in an Airbnb. (laughs) um, But yeah, he's. we just went for one day last year because the church we attend Sunday mornings is sort of a part of the five or six who started that. So yeah like a a huge portion of the church will go camp together for a few days. So um, they just have some fantastic speakers and he's he's one of them. So it's a a good event to go to. I mean, if you, our son and his wife love camping, seriously love camping. And, but I seriously don't love camping. (laughs) So I've I've done it in the past with our church over the years, but I, I feel like, now we have Airbnbs, so yeah, I think and electricity. It's good. It's good. <laughs> so let's have that. Yes, <laughs> it's fantastic. And well, outlets. 
power things. Yes. There you go. Top tip for Connect Festival, everybody. An Airbnb will all be fighting to get the best one. And we first heard about the Green Egg and your love of coffee at Milton Keynes last year, where you were hosting the event Bringing Bethel Home. And it was, we just had such a wonderful time with you um, on that day. It was great. Can you just share a little bit about what, um, what that is, what that's about? Well, bringing Bethel home is the... So the guys out of Bethel, when I told them about this idea of having an event called Bringing Bethel Home, said, that's a weird title. I said, yeah, it's only weird until you've left. <laughs> it's not weird when you've left. And it's not saying it's all about Bethel, because it's not, but there is something about Bethel. We've got thousands of students who come back, who try and work out, how do I do life? And other people who've been influenced by the culture of Bethel or the books of Bethel. And, I mean, you're privileged to be in this environment, which is it's incredible, but not everyone is. And so we just, uh, we just started doing something which is probably going to be four, five, or six times a year, maybe, of just a one-day gathering uh, where we lead the atmosphere. We have alumni leading worship. We have alumni that are helping us uh, to minister and prophesy and pray for healing. And just to lead an atmosphere that we're familiar with, um, to really just encourage people of how, how do you take what you gave your life to for one, two, three, or 15 years and bring it back. And, and you know, an awkward phrase would be translate Bethel into <laughs> the British or the European culture and, and try and just work out what does it really look like. So that's why we started doing it. We had one in Milton Keynes. We've had one in Grantham. We've got one at the end of this month in, in Leicester. Um, yes, this is, the, is it the 20th? Oh, the end of next oh, month. Yeah. Cool. The end of the month is well, cool. today. It's that weird day, February the 29th. <laughs> it's the extra day. Happy leap day or something, yeah. So that's what we're doing. And uh, we're, not trying to, we're not trying to grow a ministry out of it. We just want to create a venue where, where we can basically have some connection, fun, encourage each other. And it's open to anybody. Yeah, I think we'd started off by thinking, what can we do for our alumni and bring them together? And, and then in talking about it, I thought, well, that's great to have alumni in the room and everybody, they can all chat, they can all, you know, we can encourage them, whatever. Or we could invite lots of other people in and then our alumni could m meet together still, but then they could do something of what they went and trained for. And they can actually impart and pray for people and prophesy and, and they, We've just, last event we had 40 alumni at, and it was just so much fun watching them come alive yes. and realizing that they hadn't, some of them, I think the longest out from school was 2003. They still had it, they hadn't lost it. Yes. And they get up and have a mic and prophesy or they pray for healing. Um, and it, it's a fantastic event. So it sort of started for them and then we added other people so that we could just, so they could pray for others as well and, you know, different things like that. And we've, we've made it the kind of event where it's literally just covering our costs. That's how we wanted to do it. So that it, it was an event where we don't have to take up an offering. There aren't honorariums. It, it's just like this we just see how much the venue needs from us in, in their costing and then charge that for tickets. Now, the last event, um, the church 
wanted to gift us the day, and which was so generous of them. And so we did decide that rather than do free tickets, I don't know what you feel, free tickets people book and then they're like, oh, it's, they don't have the same value. So we thought, we'll just charge 10 pounds a ticket and then we can help with some costs for a few people that we, had, we invited to lead worship from alumni who we knew were struggling financially, but still had been willing to put their money into a 60 pound train ticket because they wanted to be there. So we were able to fund them and then the, the rest of the money now we can keep for alumni. So when we do the events again, we can, we've got money to sew in for them. Um, and so say the next one is March 27th in Leicester. And it has to be a Friday, which is quite an awkward day for a one day thing because people, you know, lots of people, including alumni are actually working. But the um, School of Ministry in Reading, their missions teams go out all over the world that week. And so there's a team in the UK. And so one of the teams is coming to Leicester. So that's the day they're in Leicester. So we're going to incorporate them and going to have a sort of crazy night of revival and whatever God chooses to do. But healing, so encouraging people to buy a ticket and get a free ticket to bring someone, um, see salvation and healing. So we're just, we're, yeah, we're just starting with that. But we, we just really feel like there are people who really do need that and they've expressed when they came to Milton Keynes we have some friends who are pastors and they were a little bit later arriving so they were grabbing their tea and they've been out to Bethel a lot of times they go to different things out there but they said when the music started and we didn't have like this massive band it wasn't as good as here um, we had a few people that got together that morning alumni and worked it out but they said as the guitar started there were, it was a sound and they said they both started crying because they felt this is, feels like home again and so I think we can never fully understand how something's going to feel for people but we just know that that's something yeah. that we want to do and we'll see where where God takes it and but it, it's a good way for our alumni too to get back and you know the hope would be in the future that we can get to know more churches you know churches come leaders come we can connect our alumni with them and that's always good when people don't know it's like we've come here now and so this is a place now that we can say to our alumni hey we know somewhere that you could land and you could be happy you know because sometimes they're like how am I going to find a church like Bethel, and we'll say, well, first of all, you won't, because every church is unique. Yeah, and you may not find somewhere that's got a thousand people. But, like last week, we're in our church in Windsor with a hundred people. Sunday before, we'd been in Bethel, Atlanta, in a massive marquee with um, Donna Summer's sister leading worship. So she upped the level. And the week before, we were in Bethel. But when I shut my eyes when the worship was singing, it felt absolutely no different to those two other places. So I think it, you know, with them sometimes it's a mindset. But to be able to say to people, here's a place where you could shut your eyes and it would feel like home. I think that's the thing. So um, that's what we hope to, 
to build as well to be able to get more connected with church leaders who come along and say, you know, finding safe places for our alumni to land and be successful doing life, basically, and having a church family that they can get as family. That's great. Mm. So good. We certainly enjoyed our time up there with you guys. It was really good. Really it was a good day, wasn't it? Day. Yeah. yeah it's brilliant. Like the practice one. <coughs> you never know whether it's going to be like, okay, let's do this, see what happens. But God, when you're faithful, God shows up. Yes. in spite of you type of thing and he's faithful and shows up so um it was a great time there so you've been back in the uk for a little while so just wondering very simply and practically kind of what brought you guys back home after being in bethel for 15 years i mean it was a combination of things it was <coughs> for for me there was definitely um the way i describe it is you know when you, when your wife gives you a jar that she can't open you know, it, the decent husbands loosen it and give it back for their wife to finish it off. I don't think you think it through, but you do. I think God did that to me. I think he loosened the, the lid. Um, for me, it began with a prophetic word about stadiums, um, of going to Nuremberg and prophetic words. Um, and then um, there was, we were actually offered a church in this country to lead, um, which probably would have been a disaster if we'd been trying to do it now it was, wasn't where our grandkids are which would make it a disaster um, so that kind of loosened the lid and prophetic words came in and then we run we were on a journey plus the idea of moving back to live here near our son daughter-in-law and our two grandsons um, not wanting to retire in Reading should there be any retirement ever in our lives but not wanting to retire in a climate that's you know, very hot, doesn't have the culture in the town, city that we would want. Um, so a lot of those things merged together. Um, and, and the huge piece of coming back to family was definitely in there. Yeah, and I think we were traveling more and more into Europe um, from Reading, which is a long, like 14 hours on a plane is just not good. And maybe doing that twice a month, you, you just really want to cry every time you step into an airport, really, to be honest. Um, and especially if you don't sleep on a plane, you know, being real. But we would go to different places and you'd sit with people and they'd look across the table and say, why do you live in America when, you're, when you should be in Europe, when Europe needs you, particularly for Paul? You know, Europe needs more fathers. Or we'd be in the stadium when we in Nuremberg and watching hundreds running as fast as they could to fall on their faces and give their lives to Jesus. And, and the sense that God was doing something in Europe. And maybe from afar it's easier to see some of the things he's doing more than when you're living in them sometimes. But I would... You know, standing in Nuremberg and then the next year, wherever we went, Stockholm. Stockholm, Prague. You know, being in Prague when the hotel receptionist is saying, um, and somebody says, we're, you know, we're, we're doing this stadium event just down the road. It's all about Jesus. And she said, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but I've never heard that name. And you're like, you're about 23 years old. But it's a country where communism was and you realize like the stuff going on in Europe and I started to feel jealous for people. I started to think, why would I live in 
America when God's going to move in, in Europe and we're, gonna, we're not going to be there. Like that, that was like, I, we want to be in Europe. We want to be placed in Europe so that when en masse throughout Europe, Jesus is just like a domino going through Europe with salvations and everything. We actually want to be here. So that's how we really saw it. And the stories we get privileged to hear about what God's doing throughout Europe is, is just crazy amazing. And yet we hear in the press them saying, you know, in the UK, less people are going to church. And I'm like, well, you're looking a lot at the Church of England. But that, those are not the stories we hear. We hear more stories about churches gaining through salvations. And so that, that really was a huge part. And we always say, like, our grandsons, that, that was the bonus. That was like God saying, I have a plan for you in Europe. And, but him being really excited that we'd get to live around the corner from our grandsons so they can knock on the door and the youngest can just about see above the outer door, the glass, and his little smiling face. And the other day, I told him we'd booked a holiday. We booked an apartment in St. Ives in Cornwall in the summer when they're going to be there. And he, his first thing was, "Are you going to live there forever?" And I said, "No, it's just a week, and then we'll still be living here," because they, they just ask those kind of questions, like, "Are, are you staying? Are you staying?" So we're like, "Yes, we're staying." And three years on, that's still a little thought in their heads. I mean, one of our trips back to England, our oldest, so it was before we moved back, so he would have been, what, less than seven. He sat in the back of the car and said, uh, basically, I thought family was supposed to live in the same country. How to break your heart, little grandson. So, yeah. And actually, for me, the final moment, the absolute 100% undeniable moment was when we sat in my mum's house and Sue's mum had left some things there for us, a pile of books, 60 years memorabilia of her grandfather in Europe, but on top was a book, Tortured for Christ, the first edition written by Richard Wormbrand, the foreword written by her grandfather, who's the man who gave me the advice to get into ministry, and it was signed by Richard Wormbrand. And for me, I held that and knew, this is our inheritance, we're coming home. That was the final thing. They're absolute, no arguments now, we're going home. So, yeah. Best decision we ever did was go to Reading. Best decision we ever made was come back. We're very grateful that you have come back. It's amazing. We're just going to finish off with some quick-fire questions from you, Sam. Is that okay? That'd be great. Shall we see if we can get through five Ooh. really quickly? Do you reckon? We'll do like do you reckon we can do that? So I'm just going to come and sneak around here. So, um, okay. How do you create space for intimacy with God? Quick-fire question. Quick fire Short question. question. I think you get real and you make it life. And you try and avoid the religion aspect of it. So if, if you can't be with God walking through the shops, walking through the park, you know, obviously, you know, you get up, you, you, you read, you read the word. But I think the more it's part of life, the more it's an integrated part of life, the more your eyes are open to see him. You know, you've got the ocean down here, or the sea, we call it in England, don't we? But, um, you know, so make it part of life um, and, and don't get too religious about it. Great, thank you. Um, 
Paul, probably again to you, actually. Um, last night, you said that we have the responsibility to pull he heaven down. The question is, where do you think our responsibility ends and where does God start? And how does that work together? <laughs> These are quick fire. <laughs> quick fire. Um, okay, I believe we live in divine tension. So to me, uh, life, and especially the heaven on earth life, is divine tension. And um, in, in everything... Um, I mean, for instance, with a prophetic word, if I give you a prophetic word, I would suggest you work out the part you can do and the part you leave to him. So you always walk in the tension of that. Um, bringing heaven to earth, the illustration I'll always use is, you know, there's no sickness in heaven, so there should be none here. That's the, that's the truth. But the reality is there is sickness here. You have to keep the tension alive because you must never reduce your theology to your experience. So you keep the tension alive. So it's the same with my responsibility, his responsibility. I, I, I need to do what I can do and trust him for what he can do, but always keep the tension alive. That's a great answer. Thank you. One final question. We've managed three. Um, your favorite ice cream flavor to finish off with? I know that. Well, there's an ice cream in St. Ives in Cornwall, and it's called Shipwreck. So if you go to St. Ives, for your holiday, I can tell you exactly. It's salted caramel with... Honeycomb. Honeycomb. Oh, yum. And in January there, in the same place, you can get Christmas pudding ice cream. And they, they use real Christmas pudding. And trust me, it, it's really quite amazing. So middle of August, I will be having shipwreck ice cream. Sounds and my grandson loves it as well. So he's always like, Grandma, we're going to have shipwreck ice cream. Then we're going to go to the pub. <laughs> and his, that's his favourite place. He's like, my favourite place in the world is the Lifeboat Inn pub. <laughs> because that's where he goes to watch football on the big screen. He doesn't understand about beer. That's where he goes to watch football. So he's like, we'll have shipwreck ice cream and then we'll go to the pub, Grandma. <laughs> he's seven. Dream but, you know, day. he just loves football. And it's a massive screen. But it's, it just sounds funny when he says that out loud. Yeah. Especially in church. I don't know. What's yours? Um, I just like ice cream. Yeah, you, he got, Paul quite likes vanilla. Yeah, I do. But like really a good, good vanilla. vanilla. Not a... And I've been known to make ice cream. I was going to say, oh, yeah, I mean... Okay. Or, or in, uh, <coughs> caramelized orange with um, Grand Marnier. You kind of need your own ice cream machine. Yeah, it's not hard to make. No, but you need your, your own ice cream machine. Good job it's lunchtime, otherwise we'd all be say, like... We're all salivating. I don't know. I mean, by the beach, there have to be ice cream places. Yeah, if you haven't good. worked it out, I love to cook. <laughs> if I Probably if I had my life all over again, I would want to be a Michelin star chef. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you know what I would like to be, so we can end on a super spiritual note? Go. I would like to be a profiler that hunts down serial killers. <laughs> There we go. And I think that's got to be the quote of the day. That's your tweet right there. I'm quite good at spotting them. <laughs> so good. No, seriously, I told Chris Vallotton that when he asked me if I could do anything in the world. And then he said, why, 
why are you not pursuing that? So I said, because you need a maths degree and I don't have one. That's seriously, I don't have a, I'm hopeless at maths, otherwise, you so. That would be your full-time. That would be my full-time job, yeah. That is excellent. Guys, can we give Paul and Sue a massive Thank round you. of applause? Thank you so much yeah. for your time. Thank you. you.